Greetings and blessings, saints. Welcome to the Revelation Decoded Podcast. I'm your host and teacher, Gil Maza. We are going through an epic study through the book of Revelation, unlike any you might have heard before. Did the first century Christians understand the book of Revelation when it was first written by the Apostle John? You bet. They understood it and acted on it, and therefore they were spared the greatest tribulation that could ever come upon a Jewish people and the cataclysmic end of the Old Covenant. Think you know the book of Revelation? Come and see. So, even after, as I had mentioned before, this great victory, this great victory, right? I mean, how would you feel? Pumped, wouldn't you? You would be on top of the world. You would be on this spiritual high going, man, the Lord is God. Boom, we're, it's, it's set, it's settled. But even after this great victory, Elijah is afraid of her, is afraid of her. I mean, we'll go to uh, chapter 19 of of 1 Kings, but he is afraid of her. He believes he's all alone. He believes everyone else has compromised to Jezebel and is worshiping her gods. But God shows up and reminds Elijah that he alone is God and that there are 7,000 others that have not bowed the knee to Baal. So, I don't know. My my takeaway there, briefly, is this. How many times have you and I felt completely alone in our walk of faith? Like we're the only ones out there obeying God, following God, doing what He says, even in our own families or in our own neighbors or in our own friendship circles or in our own communities. I don't know. In our own at work. We feel like we're trying real hard, but they're like we just see, we feel like we're all alone, like we're the only ones. And yet God says, no, you're not the only one. You're not the only one. And that's what he does here. Let's look at this real quick. In uh, 1 Kings 19, it says, Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and now he had killed the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and even more, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. So she writes back and says, I'm going to do to you the same thing you did to my prophets. I'm going to kill you. And he was afraid. You know, you can ask yourself, how can he have just witnessed? Right? How can, how can he have just witnessed all that, done all that, spoken with such authority and power, so sure that God was going to answer his prayer, that he hedged the bet on God's side and even soaked the altar with water? Right? How could he be so sure one minute and so down the next? Well, welcome to humanity. Welcome to the plight of the human being. In this world. And it says, And he was afraid and rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belonged to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die. I don't know, is this a little bit of drama or what? Could you imagine what his Facebook post would look like right there? Right? All vague and like, you know, I'm, you know, I'm dead. Oh, what does that mean? You know, and and people will write this crazy stuff, you know, and they're vague and you don't know what it is, but everybody's writing, what's wrong? What's wrong? What's the matter with you? 
he's like, he had requested that it die. He says, it is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Wow. From mountaintop to as low as you can possibly get. He lay down and slept under a juniper tree, and behold, there was an angel touching him. And he said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a bread cake baked with hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank, and he lay down again. Depressed. The angel of the Lord came again a second at time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank and went into the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. So in the midst of his depression, in the midst of his fear for his life, he wanted to die. He thought he was, he was dead. God ministered to him a little bit at a time, right? He didn't come back with these great miracles and show him more miracles. Obviously, that's not, you know, you have to exercise faith. You have to use your faith. Nowadays, we want everything to happen apart from faith. We want everything to happen apart from prayer. We want everything to happen apart from a walking commitment to God. Here, there was no more miracles. He just fed him and spoke to him. And guess what? From that little food he, he ate, he was able to sustain himself 40 days and 40 nights to walk up to Horeb, the mountain of God. Then he came there to a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Woe is me, right? I'm alone. I'm in fear for my life. I, I have been threatened with my life. I just want to die. I am so scared and I'm all alone. I'm the only one on the planet. And again, very human emotion. Uh, you know, so many times we feel like we're the only ones out there struggling. So he said, go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by. I know th this is a great story, isn't it? And behold, the Lord was passing by, and a great strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord wasn't in the wind. Huh? And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord wasn't in an earthquake. See, in our minds, we want to see that grand sign, right? That grand effect, you know, see God just, I mean, just see him do these great things. But says the Lord wasn't in the wind. He wasn't in the earthquake. And after that, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after that, the sound of a gentle blowing. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him. So God wasn't in the, you know, the great wind. God wasn't in the earthquake. God wasn't in the fire. He was in that stillness. Of a small voice, right? The sound of a gentle blowing. And Elijah heard it and he says, Behold, the voice said, What are you doing here, Elijah? You notice how God keeps asking him that question. Does God not know? Does God not understand what's going on here? Of course he does. He is more than familiar with every last detail of what's going on at that point, including all the details that Elijah doesn't even know. 
But I just love how he keeps asking Elijah, what are you doing here? What are you doing? You know, I found that to be one of the most effective ways to sit with somebody in crisis and distress. Is not sit there and just talk at them and try to make them feel better and try to fill the air with as much, you know, blistering voice, hot air that I can. But I noticed that just sitting there and going, what are you doing? What are you going to do? What's going on right now? And then letting them fill in the blanks for me so that I can understand better what the situation is. And even when they don't know or they say they don't know, eventually you give them enough time and you make it as comfortable and safe as for them as they possibly can, right? Away from the winds, away from the earthquake, away from the fire, because God's not in those. He's in that quietness of our spirit speaking to us, Gil, what are you doing here? What are you doing? And I and most of the time I'm like, you know what, God? Nothing good. I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be doing this. I'm in the wrong place, God. I'm not where I'm supposed to be. Help me get where I need to go, Lord. And then grab a hold of God and then grab a hold of the hand of the first person that I, I reach out to when I'm in distress. And he walks me out. Anyway, I digress. I've been very zealous for you, the Lord of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets by the sword. I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Verse 15 of chapter 19. The Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you have arrived, you shall anoint Hazael king over Aram. And Jehu son of Nimhushu shall appoint, anoint king over Israel. You shall anoint king over Israel. And Elisha the son of Shaphat of Abel and Nehola, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. So now he's given him instruction in that quietness. He's telling them what he wants from him. It shall come about that the one who escapes from the sword of Hezel, Jeshu shall put to death. And the one who escapes the sword of Jeshu, Elisha shall put to death. Listen to this. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel. All the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. Wow. So in the midst of this struggle, even though he found himself alone in one of the biggest challenges of his life, there were still 7,000 others. What this reminds me also, and one of my favorite characters in the Bible, believe it or not, is not just one character. It's always that unknown prophet of God or unknown man of God that shows up at a situation in the Old Testament, they never tell you his name. They never tell you who he was or where he comes from. He's just a man of God who just showed up out of nowhere, does God's will, and then he disappears. It's almost like, you know, the man with no name, Clint Eastwood in those movies, right? He rides into town, takes care of all the bad guys, rides out into the sunset, and nobody ever found out what his name was. But... Here, it's the same thing. He's got, he's got 7,000 guys out there. You may not know their names. You may not know who they are. You, may not even, you weren't even aware they were alive. But these guys did not compromise, and they um, will be here in Israel. And so Elijah goes on, and he does his thing. And he does his thing. And for the moment, his depression, his fear for his life, the threat of Jezebel and what she was going to do to him, it didn't matter anymore. And that's, I think, something that God wants to work out in all our lives if we let him, right? But um, 
Again, uh, we're told that King Ahab is committing detestable acts in the sight of the Lord and used and manipulated by his wife Jezebel. Now, how do the acts of Jezebel back then translate to the sins committed here in the church of Thyatira? Well, first of all, it was a teaching issue. It was a teaching issue. The teaching of Jezebel is called syncretism. Syncretism. You'll notice that the root word of that, sync, being in sync, right? Being in sync and on the same page. Syncretism. It is the merger of different and at times contradictory religious practices, faith, and beliefs in order to reconcile different religious traditions found within a community in order to find unity between competitive views. In other words, if you can't beat them, join them. Syncretism in the Old Testament involved Israel's absorption or bringing in of Canaanite religious practices into the religion of Yahweh, of Jehovah God. Okay? Of Jehovah God. <clears throat> the reason why syncretistic practices became prevalent in Israel was because the covenant that God established with the people at Sinai didn't require Israel to deny the existence of other gods. Rather, the covenant required Israel to worship Yahweh alone as the only God of Israel. Exodus 20 verse 3 says, You must not have any other God but me. However, when Israel chose to worship other gods, the prophets would criticize them for violating the demands of that covenant. Here's the thing. God spends no time whatsoever refuting or battling other gods like that, right? Because we all know they don't exist. We, we all know that. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that as we go. But the worship of other gods did intensify after Israel conquered the land of Canaan. For many years, Israel had been in the wilderness preparing to enter the promised land. Now, an entirely new generation of Israelites who entered the land with Joshua was not familiar with agricultural life and had never learned to cultivate and you know an arid land to produce crops. So Yahweh, or the God of the Bible, was not an agricultural God as far as they were concerned, like Baal was. See, because Baal's stock in trade is bringing rain for crops, fertility. The land which the Israelites had now, now had to grow crops and produce their fa pasture was believed to belong to Baal because of the, you know, they belonged to the Canaanites before. It was Baal in their minds who produced crops and increased the flocks and herds of his worshippers. It was this belief that tempted many Israelites to abandon the God who guided them through the wilderness for them to follow other gods and goddesses who, with the promise that they would deliver grain, that they would deliver oil, that they would deliver wine in abundance. And you see, that's the same reason why we set aside the God of the Bible and adopt other gods in our lives, other beliefs in our lives today. Because we think the God of the Bible isn't equipped to provide us. He can take us up to a certain point, right? He can take care of us spiritually, so to speak. But for the rest of our life, in the practical world, we need to rely on other gods and goddesses to do that. Other beliefs, other philosophies, other faith systems to take care of us through that process because we just don't believe or they just began to think that the God of the Bible wasn't equipped to handle that land as well as 
the so-called false gods before them that were supposedly running, you know, running that land or in charge of that land or territorially building you know, that land belonged to them. It took many years before Israel began to understand that it was not Baal, but Yahweh who was giving them their grain and their oil and their wine. The prophet Hosea, in chapter 2, verse 5, it says, Israel had said, I'll run after other lovers, and I'll sell myself to them for food and water, for clothing and wool and linen, and for olive oil and drinks. Right? That's Hosea chapter 2, verse 5. That's what Israel was saying to itself. But Hosea told the people that the giver of these blessings was Yahweh, Jehovah, not Baal. So Yahweh says, the God of the Bible says in Hosea 2.8, it's written right on your outline. Israel did not know that it was I who gave her the grain the wine and the oil and who lavished upon her silver and gold that they end up using for Baal. Think about that spiritual thought for a moment, that spiritual kernel, that we take the blessings that God gives us in whatever shape or form they are, whether it's grain for sustenance, right? Wine for enjoyment or whatever, oil for medicinal, whatever, all those things. We take what God gives us, and it says here, you lavish it upon another God. You give other gods credit for everything that I gave you. That's the sin that God and Jesus in the New Testament find so objectionable and detestable. And like I've always said many times, you've probably heard me say it, you know, you literally... When you deny your faith in God, when you deny belief in God or that God exists, you literally have to sit in his lap to slap him in the face. You literally have to use everything God gave you, including the breath in your lungs, to blaspheme his name. Sitting on his lap to slap him in the face. It's, it's mind-boggling. But... That's what God says here in Hosea. You took everything I lavished upon you that they used for Baal. If that isn't the worst cosmic insult or slap in the face to God, you tell me what is. Remember that Thyatira was famous in the ancient world both for its highly organized trade unions Actually, they called themselves cooperatives. Many of the city's Christians worked in these unions and um, to start and, and to start keep and maintain their businesses, they were required to obtain membership, to attain to attend banquets and ceremonies where occult deities were honored, glorified, and worshipped, and hidden occult rituals to include orgies, sex, sacrifices, nudity. Leaping and yelling and cutting themselves just like those prophets thousands of years before. You see how that, that nothing has changed there? Same old trick, same old Satan, but brand new audience every time we turn around. Doing the same old thing. So they were required to do these things. They had inadvertently, the people of God had inadvertently reverted to the detestable practices of the false God, the false priests of Baal, whom God disposed of 
right in front of them after he humiliated Baal by you know lighting his lighting his altar where the other one stayed just as it was to also putting to death all those prophets right all those false prophets they saw all these things and yet can still make the same spiritual mistake later on now the draw the temptation to join these unions and guilds and their meetings was very powerful at the time no merchant or trader christian jewish christian gentile christian could hope to prosper or make money unless they were a member of these trade guilds nonetheless christians were expected to stand in the face of this kind of pressure you see god is telling them i know that you're going through a lot and i know they're making it harder and harder on you but you have to stand firm you have to persevere one ancient christian named tertullian a great church father in the early church wrote about christians who made their living in trades connected to pagan idolatry he says a painter might find work in pagan temples or a sculptor might be hired to make a statue of a pagan god they would just justify it by saying you know what this is my living and i have to live i have to feed my family i have to support myself i have to pay my bills and we use that to justify sometimes stuff that we know god doesn't want us to do to earn money or to survive or to compromise because it destroys the witness it's it's synchronism we're saying you know uh, i use this example a lot but it's almost like all the smugglers that smuggle in drugs or people babies for sex trade for labor for hard labor for everything else but they stop by the catholic church on the way out so that a priest can come and pour holy water and that incense ball to bless the 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 cargo right to bless that trunk full of people to bless that trunk full of drugs so that here's the supposedly the god of the bible giving a blessing to this smuggler to ply his trade and be blessed with what the border patrol doesn't catch him right and on the other hand, I, as a Border Patrol agent, am standing in the border praying for a load to come through so I can catch it. So, you know, <laughs> well, I used to anyway. I'm retired now. But anyway, you see how it is such a conflict for them. And they're brand new Christians, too. Think about this. I mean, they're barely getting started. The church is barely 40 years old, roughly 40 years old. And God says, I can't have that stuff going on in my churches because you are setting the tone for everybody else. The, when you, you eventually you're going to leave this place and you're going to scatter to the four winds, to the four corners of the earth. You are going to spread the gospel of the kingdom like that, you know, that rock that hits the, the earth and spreads across, around the, the earth and becomes a mountain, as it says in Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 4. The the vision that nebuchadnezzar had so he can't be having that stuff it's it's very touchy but again i ask you saints do you think that the call to remain pure in the midst of this pressure and we're seeing that pressure right now right we're seeing that pressure in society today to fall in lockstep in certain ways to either walk in line with the prevailing thoughts and ideas going on or be persecuted, be canceled, be removed, be whatever. 
the lines are being drawn every single day. Lines are being drawn. And if you do not fall in lockstep, if you do not go get in sync with these beliefs, then it's going to make life a little bit harder, a little bit harder on you. How am I doing on time? I got about 15 minutes left. So they, that's the pressure that they're seeing. Now, apparently they have a very strong individual in the midst of their church that represented Jezebel of the Old Testament who was inviting these elements into the church and encouraging the followers, you know what, you're saved, you're a Christian, you can indulge in these practices with their unions and their occult followers and claiming, you know, that it's not you going against God, but it's in harmony with God and that God would want you to worship Jesus and add to that these pagan gods together in the name of unity, in the name of tolerance, and in the name of peace. It will no longer be Jesus plus nothing. It would now be Jesus plus everything. Now, I don't know if my outline, I'm going to talk about that a little bit more. Tolerance. We're going to talk about tolerance. And I, I do see where I'm going, to, I'm going to move down there if I get time today. If not, we'll begin it the next week. But um, here's the thing, right? Some have implied that this could have been the wife of the pastor, Jezebel, right? When Jesus says here, you know, you tolerate the woman Jezebel among you. Uh, uh, some people have speculated that this could have been the wife of that pastor of the church, of the angel of the church of Thyatira, which I have established in an earlier Bible study that I believe is that pastor, right? Angels don't get letters from human beings, right? Written to them through human beings to talk to angels. God speaks to angels directly. So... This was a letter to their pastor, and some people say, well, you know what? The wife of that guy in Thyatira was Jezebel, and she was leading them astray, right? Because the pastor himself, you know, blah, blah, blah. I don't buy it because obviously the pastor's doing something right because not everybody was, was doing it, right? So I don't think it was the pastor leading them astray. And honestly, you know, while that sounds pretty cool, probably would make a great Lifetime movie or a Netflix series, there's no evidence. I looked and looked and looked and looked and I, I, I searched every source. I could not find a solid, historical, credible source of anybody that said, yeah, Jezebel was the, the wife of the pastor uh, of that, um, the wife of the pastor there in Thyatira. Now, here's the thing, though. As far as what was going on there, what was going on, again, in a nutshell, they had their faith in Jesus, in God, solid. But they were beginning to say, it's okay to add all these elements in, other gods, because they handled the finances, right? I need these gods on this side to let me open my business, to let me do business and be successful, to let me make money and earn money so I can support my family. Therefore, it's okay to bring these in alongside. I'm still worshiping the Lord, right? The Lord my God, but... I'm also adding these guys in and basically they were saying it's okay to do that as many are doing today. Many, many do today, you know, that it's okay. So that's the main gist of it there. That's the main gist of it is starting to come in sync with 
other religions, other faiths, other philosophies that were very strong and prevailing and prevalent in that society and saying, we can marry those together. We can be one big happy family. And we have many examples of that today. Many false prophets and false teachers who say that their faiths and their beliefs do not contradict Jesus or his teachings, but complement them. Huh? They complement them. New Age occult practices, astrology, psychics, witches, transcendental meditation, Baha'i, and many other countless claims that their religions add to our Christian faith, complement our Christian faith, enhance our Christian faith. In fact, you can buy books all day long on Google that'll tell you, you know, your walk with God will be that much better if you add these transcendental meditation practices. Your walk with God will be, will, will just just literally pop and you'll you know, you'll be your mind will be revolutionized, right? Because if you add the teachings of Buddha to the teachings of Jesus. And let me tell you something, that is a tragic spiritual error and a big mistake. From the words of Jesus, whoever this prophetess is, her followers know the word of God, right? They know. It's not like they're mistaken. It's not like they were blinded or led astray. They know the word of God, even that God is not approving or condoning those actions. That's why Jesus said he's giving them time to repent. You can't repent of that which you don't know, of that which you don't understand. They believe that they now are more enlightened they're now understand and have a bigger, more encompassing truth about God. And being enlightened means being tolerant. Tolerant. The very word that Jesus uses. What does he say in Revelation 2, 18? He says, verse 20, I have this against you that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess tolerate how do they tolerate it by being gracious and participating in to the fullest extent in the sins and beliefs of the unbelieving world around them okay after all everyone has a right to believe what they want right and who are we to tell them they're wrong even the pope has said that Jews, Muslims, and Christians all believe in the same God. Remember, here's the thing. Even the person that says, "You are, uh, who are you to tell me I'm wrong, is somehow qualified to tell you that you're wrong. You can't get around it. It is a logical inconsistency to say, who are you to tell me I'm wrong? Well, you're just telling, that person is telling you that you're wrong, you see. So it doesn't work. It doesn't work. I think about other examples. Like, for instance, you ever seen those books where it's you open up to a blank page and it says in the middle of the blank page, this page intentionally left blank. Well, not really, right? If there's writing in the middle of the page... <laughs> <laughs> that says this page intentionally left blank. It's not blank anymore, technically, is it? So it's a logical contradiction. Right? There's no such thing as truth. Well, 
Is that just true what you just said? Is that true? There are no absolutes. Is that absolute? Is that an absolute truth? You see? So we hear this stuff all the time and we just let it kind of get into our minds. And sometimes it, you know, it, it uh, confuses us. It, it stops us in our tracks. Oh man, what do I say now? You know? Who are you to tell me I'm wrong? Well, then I'm the same person you are telling me I'm wrong. So it's just this vicious circle, right? Illogical vicious circle. Once you accept that premise, there's nowhere to go after that. You see, should a Christian be tolerant of others? Yes, absolutely. Of their religious beliefs? Yes, absolutely. But think about the root word to the word tolerance. Tolerance used to mean in spite of what you believe, what you're doing, our disagreements, how we are the contradictions between us. In spite of all that, I will tolerate you. I want you to tolerate me. And let's be in harmony about that. Let's treat each other like human beings. That's what tolerance used to look like. And that's what it technically really means, right? When you're tolerating something, it doesn't mean you like it because you're tolerating it. If you didn't, if you liked it, you wouldn't be tolerating it. You'd be enjoying it. When you tolerate something, it's in spite of the fact that it either you don't agree with it, you don't like it, you don't believe it, but you give the person the room and freedom to express themselves however they like. We stretch that out to race, color, religion, you know, tall, small, handicapped, whatever it is, male, female, all that stuff. We learn to tolerate. And so, yes, should a Christian be tolerant of other people's beliefs? Yes. We're not, we're not called to go out and beat people up and attack them and browbeat them and try to, you know, beat the faith out of them like the devil beats the image of God out of, out of people that believe in, in his view, in his uh, philosophies. Right? They're trying to beat the image of God out of, out of those people. We're not trying to beat, do that. So the, the Christian does not do that. So in the classical sense, we, in spite of the fact that we disagree violently in our hearts and minds with other people's beliefs, we tolerate or we will treat them the way Christ wants us to treat them. In fact, Christians shouldn't, you know, we, we don't really tolerate. We actually are to go out of our way to bless and to, and to uh, take care of and to feed those that need it and clothe those that need it, even if they don't believe what we believe. We're to treat them as we would treat Christ. You know, you did it for the least of these. You did it for me. Whether they ever come to faith or not, that's that's the Christian calling. That's the obligation. I don't know about you, but, you know, when I see someone poor, hungry, or whatever, I don't, that's not the first thing I ask them. You know, whether well, you believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, or you go to church. I'm, no, mm, I can't help you. We don't do that. So in the natural sense, we are practicing that, and in some cases, we probably should practice it a little more depending on, the, on your situation. But we should be prepared to accept that as well as the fact that those who reject God reject their followers. Right? People reject God, they reject you for being a follower of God. Now, some people are better at it than others, and they tolerate you, right? They tolerate you. But that's not what tolerate means anymore. Right now, the way things are going, tolerance means you have to accept what I believe. 
You have to believe what I believe. You have to embrace it. And you better honor it or else. And that's not tolerance. That's not tolerance. That's making you accept it, forcing you to accept it. The world does not practice the tolerance it demands from the rest of us. Let me tell you that. They don't. Out there in the public marketplace in the, uh, of opinions and ideas and social media, people aren't tolerating your faith and your beliefs. They're attacking it. They're vilifying it. They're twisting it. They're corrupting it. They're not tolerating it. So uh, many of the, of the biggest proponents and champions of tolerance won't tolerate you for a second. They don't feel the need to tolerate you for a second. To tolerate the faith, to tolerate the gospel. Don't talk to me. Don't shove Jesus down my throat. Don't talk to me about the scripture. I don't want to hear about the Bible. Okay. They're not tolerating it. And they're not doing it. So it's a kind of a catch-22, but that's the way it is. So in that sense, we are to tolerate people and treat them like human beings regardless of what they believe. But Christians shouldn't be tolerant in the modern sense. We should not endorse beliefs that all religions lead to God. That... Every truth is just a personal construct or your truth is as good as my truth. I don't have to agree with that. I don't have to tolerate it. Right? That everybody's beliefs are valid. I don't have to accept that either. I'll still treat you like a human being, but I will not accept those things. Jesus is the truth. Christians have always been called to tolerate and even love people without accepting or embracing or endorsing their false beliefs. We are called to tolerate humans, but not tolerate evil, injustice, idolatry, or false teachings. So should a Christian participate in the same idol worship and occult practices of the world for the sake of tolerance? Absolutely not. And with that, that's what we're going to stop for tonight. I noticed the time went, went pretty quick. So we'll stop right there. We got about a page and a half to finish for the next lesson. I will open it up for questions. What do you say, Saints? Pretty interesting. What's that? It's pretty interesting. I say. Isn't that funny how uh, so much, as much as things change, how much they actually stay the same? And see, well, that's why the application to, you know, like I said, I may believe in my view of Revelation that most of the things that are spoken of in Revelation already happened, but the spiritual principles, the spiritual applications, those are eternal. Those extend until the day Jesus comes back because while he's talking to this church in particular at that point, he's talking to all of us at one point or another in our Christian walk. Yeah, no, I, definitely. And it's funny, I I remember the story of Elijah and the burning of the fire. I don't remember him going through that depression. Yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's such an interesting study all by itself, and there's so much more that could have been said. I mean, I you know you could have done just a lesson on that alone with all the little nitpicky things. And I did stop and take my time a little bit on some of the stuff that jumps out at me there. But um, but yeah, and, and that's the beauty of God's word, Roseanne. It's just it's so power packed. I mean, remember that when we first did this Bible study, I did 42 lessons. So I go back and listen to what I said originally, and I find that. Um, 
you know, not the general idea hasn't changed, but it's so funny how the details that I focused on in that first lesson aren't exactly the details I focused on in this one. So even then I'm evolving with the word, the words changing me and moving me in a different direction. And even though in the back of my mind, I remember what I said before, but this right now, the spirit is leading me in a whole different conversation. So if you hear that podcast and this podcast, you'll see, of course, it's the same fr framework, but my focus was a little bit different the first time around. No. Well, thank you again so much. Remember, next Tuesday is in person. I will make every effort to try to broadcast that one as well. So things will be a little different. I don't know if I'll be able to have the presence of mind of unmuting you and talking to you during that time. So uh, I'm going to have to make sure that those of you who do not attend, write your questions down, please. Send them to me on email and I will take the time to respond to that because I love doing that. Okay, so please do that. So let me just briefly pray and send you guys on your way. And thank you again for just another wonderful night in the word of God for all of us here together. Beloved Father, there are so many things competing for our minds and our hearts in this world today. And some of them we have fallen for, Father. Some of them we have idolized above you. Some of them we have said to ourselves, I can get what I want this way as opposed to following your way. And Lord, we keep failing. It keeps it keeps falling apart. It doesn't work, Lord, because we, keep, we find ourselves again, again, running for our lives, Lord, fearful, depressed because we those decisions that we make. And then you come and find us, Father, not in the chaos, but in the gentle wind, in that still small voice where you tell us how much you love us and you tell us how much you care. You minister to us, Father, in the most meekest of ways. It's not these grandiose signs and wonders that it doesn't matter because we can go one minute from seeing them to the next minute being completely lost. But I thank you for your grace and your diligence, Father, that you don't let us alone. And I thank you that we can hold on to the thought that when we feel all alone, we know that we have so many others out there that are bowing the knee to Baal, Father, that have not kissed, his, kissed him, that have not committed to them, Lord, that have not gotten intimate with those gods and those false gods, right, Lord. And we just, we praise, I praise you for that thought, Father. I, I, sometimes it's very comforting to know I'm not the only one struggling. Father, I just pray that you continue to allow us to minister to each other, to pray for each other, to take care of each other. And those tonight that need you desperately listening to my voice, whether physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, that you would fill them with your spirit to abundance, Father, and that you would bless them. I thank you and praise you for all your gifts and your blessings. In Jesus' name, amen. May God richly bless you, saints. All participants are unmuted. God bless you guys. Good night. This concludes part two of lesson two, The Church at Thyatira, Married the Multiple Gods. Please join us for part three next week. Thank you, and may God richly bless you, saints.